Well, it's great to be here with you all this morning. It's always a blessing to come to Providence Reform and see you guys and just take part in worship together and opening the Word together. And it's just a blessing to see what God's doing among you as always. I love the time that we get together when we have sovereign grace and providence. We need to, I say this every time I think, but we need to do that more because it's just a a big encouragement for all of us and I hope it is for you as well. So well, we're in the Word today as we find it in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai 2, so go ahead and turn there. If you have trouble finding it, it's you can go to your New Testament to Matthew and then turn back a couple books. And they're all minor prophets, so they're not that big. So just turn back a few pages probably. Haggai chapter 2, which that last hymn was based out of. It was really encouraging to re- hear that. I've never heard that hymn before. But we are going to actually cover the entire chapter. It's a lot. So you should be here till dinner-ish. Uh, no, we'll try to do it in normal time. But we have a lot to cover, and the Lord is gracious for giving His Word to us. So let's read uh, Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house, this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I shall shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and says, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there was but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight 
and mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you that you are holy and righteous. You're the ruler of all creation, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And You are good, and You are kind, and You are gracious. And in those truths, Lord, we rejoice because Your goodness we can so clearly see in Christ. Pray as we read these words from Haggai, which are so long ago and can feel so out of touch, that they would help us see our Lord more clearly. Help us see what Jesus has done for us and what He continues to do. And help us to worship You and draw others to worship as we do so. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, when I was in college, uh, I had a favorite teacher. I don't know if you guys had favorite teachers growing up. Um, my teacher in college, my favorite professor, was a guy named Dr. Eric Taunus. He still teaches at Biola. He's a wonderful man. He was my pastor at the time as well. Um, very godly, wise man. And he made an impact on my life in lots of ways. But there was one class in particular, one day in a character of God class, where he said something that I would never forget. Uh, the reason why it hits home so much is because I was kind of going through a, an existential crisis at the time. And, you know, when you're younger, everything seems like an existential crisis. But um, I was struggling with picking my major, trying to figure out how to serve the Lord. I felt called to ministry, but I, I was getting married in not too distant future, and I want to provide for a family. So I just had a really hard time deciding, what does the Lord want me to do with my life? How should I focus my life, my ministry, my, um, my efforts to make the biggest impact on the kingdom? And while I was struggling with this, one day in, in class, Dr. Thomas was just talking about his ministry and the things that he's learned throughout many years of ministry. And he said something that just stuck with me. And I just wanted to share it with you guys. He said, the type of work you decide to do is really not that important. That kind of was a shocker to me for a second. But really what matters in the end is how you do the work that God has given you along the way. And then he said this, if you want to glorify God with your life and your ministry, don't forget this, and I haven't. If you want to glorify God with your ministry, help people to see that God is good and that God is great, especially in Christ. That's such a profound truth. Help people to see that God is good and that God is great, especially in Christ. Now, that stuck with me for 15 years because it keeps coming up over and over again. 
as I read God's Word. And I feel like when we read Haggai 2 today, that's exactly what Haggai is trying to get at. Is that God is good and that God is great. And in this case, since they're building the temple, he wants to also tell us that God is good and great and He's building more than we can possibly imagine in Christ. I hope that's what we see this morning as we read the text here. But before I get to that, we need to understand what we mean by good and great. I mean, we, we call pizza good or great. So we, it seems unfair to call God good or great. So what do we mean when we say God is good? Well, we don't just mean God is not bad. He's not. But we also mean that everything that God is and everything God does is worthy of approval. That when, when God acts, when you see God for who He is, you never look at that and think, ah, oh, you know what, if we could just adjust this a little bit or, or tweak this or that. No, everything that God does deserves a standing ovation. When the world sees who He is, sees what He does, everybody thinks, that's perfect. That's exactly what I needed to see and what I needed to hear. Because God is good. But His goodness to us is often displayed in His care of us. In the kind of attributes where he, he deals with His people graciously. So these names that we hear throughout Scripture, like God is our Father, or our Shepherd, or our Friend, those are attributes that talk about His goodness. The kind of things that make us run towards God. Does that make sense? Those are the kind of things where it says God is good. So what do we mean by, by saying God is great? Well, His greatness is a little bit different in the sense that it's more along the lines with His sovereignty. His majesty, His glory, His transcendence. The type of things that make us fear Him in a holy, reverent fear. And make us recognize our own sinfulness. There are some theologians that organize their entire theology of God around goodness and greatness. And the most glorious truth in the Bible is not that God is good or He's great. It's that He is good and great. Just think about it. If he was just good, that would be profoundly disappointing. Wouldn't it? He's a caring friend, a, a nice guy, but he just can't do anything. I mean, it's sometimes like with my kids. I love my kids. My daughter's Hope is here with me. You guys can say hi later. She's great. Um, they love me and they want to care for me. And you know what? When I'm working on stuff, they want to come help, which I appreciate. But sometimes I'm like, you know, I love your heart. I'm glad that you want to help, but you just can't do this yet. Right? You, can't, you haven't figured this out yet. Um, and that's okay. So they lack the ability to help. They're kind, they're good, but they can't really do anything with that goodness. And that's what God would be. He would be just good, but He wouldn't be able to act. But if God was just great, that would be terrifying. He would be powerful and majestic and holy, but He wouldn't necessarily be for us. You just get on His side or you're squashed. Which would be more like the God of Islam. Or maybe He, he is great, He's majestic and holy, but He's just never around. It's like the deistic God. He's just distant and absent. No, the good news of Scripture is that God is good, He's close to us, and He's great. He actually can do something about it. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the king and the shepherd. He loves us, and He has the power to do something. He can and He cares. That's the glorious truth that I believe Haggai is trying to bring out to us today in Haggai 2. But before we get to Haggai 2, we have to remember what happened in Haggai 1. So if you remember last time I was here, I think most of you were here, uh, we talked about Haggai 1, but that's been two months ago. So if you're like me, I forget what happened yesterday, let me remind you. Um, So Haggai 1 actually talks about what happened after the exile. 
If you guys remember, in 586 B.C., the people of God were kicked out of the Promised Land. One of the most tragic days in their history. They were kicked out because of their rebellion and their sin and their idolatry. And God even brought in a pagan nation, Babylon, to come in and wipe them out. Destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and left them in shambles and took any survivors left a thousand miles away to be slaves in Babylon. And the people of God felt abandoned. They felt hopeless until God did something amazing. In 536 B.C., God sent another pagan nation in Persia and wiped out Babylon. And amazingly, God freed the Jews. They were given money and a blessing to go back to their land to build their temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. They were even given supplies. In this miracle, they were freed from slavery and able to do what God wanted them to do. And they did that. They went back to the land. They, they started by building an altar, worshiping God. This is what happens in Haggai 1. And they started to work, but then that's when things started to fall apart. The Samaritans, they wanted to come help. Seemed like it was kind at first. Can we help you build the temple? But the Jews were wise this time. They said, you know what? We don't want your help because we remember what our parents did. We invite you in. You'll bring your idols as well. So they said no. And then basically the, the Samaritans tattled on them, told Persia, said, hey, if they build this temple, they're not going to worship you. They're not going to be trusted. So they basically said, you need to stop. No more building the temple. And by the time Haggai comes on the scene, the people had let the temple um, sit in ruins for 15 years. And they did what we would have done, right? They, they were busy with their families, their jobs, making a living. And then Haggai comes. And Haggai confronts them in their sin. Because if you remember, when they stopped building the temple, they basically said, you know what, we just don't have the time. It's bad timing. We don't have the money, the resources. Persia wants to get us. And Haggai cuts right through all of that. And the words of God says, no, this is not about Persia. It's not about time or money. This is idolatry, pure and simple. You've prioritized God. You've pushed Him aside to build your own lives, to build your own little temples. And you've done this and you need to repent. And by the way, how has that worked out for you? Right? Hasn't God frustrated your plan? Hasn't God brought drought? They had no harvest, no crop. Everything they did led to frustration. And then Haggai points out, look, that's because God is being gracious to you. doesn't sound very gracious to us, right? But God disrupts them in their sin to draw them back to Him. And by the end of Haggai 1, that's exactly what happens. The people repent. They turn from their ways. They repent and turn back to God and they start building the temple. And oh, how I wish I could say that they just lived happily ever after. Right? They had the Disney fairy tale ending, but we know better, don't we? We know there really are no Disney fairy tale endings until Jesus comes back and sets everything right. Because when we, if you've walked with Jesus for a little while, you know that sometimes the great moments of glory and repentance and blessing can lead to some really deep valleys. And that's exactly what we see in Haggai 2. So the first thing that happens is God's people go into despair. And God continues to be gracious to them and help them by showing them who He is. So that's what we see in verse 1. Go back to verse 1 with me um, in Haggai chapter 2. These are God's despairing people. Let's see what it says. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, now, let me stop there for a second, because Haggai loves to date his sermons, which is super helpful for us thousands of years later. But this sermon, that date would actually be October 17th, 
520 B.C. So if you're keeping track, this is about two months after that big revival, after that big moment of repentance, two months after the people repented, they got to work. Haggai preached. They're, they're pumped up. They're excited. And the work was slow. Well, why was the work so slow? Why was the work so difficult? Well, one, they didn't have power tools. Right? There was no buzz saw out there and, and that kind of thing. We kind of lose track of that sometimes. Uh, for, for two is that they let the temple rot for 15 years. The first thing they had to do was just clear it off and then repair the foundation. That took time. So they're, they're just trying to do work to get back to ground zero. And the, the, another thing that happened was they had to work through the holidays. Now, we don't even like that, do we? I mean, during this, this two-month period, they had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. They had a, countless Sabbaths. And right in the middle of this sermon from Haggai, they're in the middle of this Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically where all the Jews would come back to Jerusalem and they would go on a camping trip for a week, in a way. They would go out into the wilderness, pitch tents, and try to remember what it was like when they were in exile in Egypt. And maybe even in Babylon. They had remnants of that as well. But they would celebrate that. They would do that and then return home and have this big feast. And here's where it gets tough. They had no crop. They were just, had, just got over a drought. There was very little to celebrate. They just have this foundation in shambles. God's people are trying to celebrate, trying to work through the holidays, but it seems like they're making no ground. They're gaining no ground at all. And let's see what God says. Into verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You see what Haggai is doing here? He's, he's calling all the Israelites. He calls the governor. He calls the high priest. He says, look, everybody, was anybody around when the temple was in its glory days? Now, we're talking almost 70 years ago. So there would be almost nobody around that could remember it. But I'm sure even the young people heard stories of the glory days. I mean, your kids probably heard stories of your glory days in high school and stuff like that, right? We hear those types of things. So they, they would know what the temple was like. He's saying, do you remember how great it was? It was lined with gold. It was beautiful. The glory of God dwelt there. The nations feared God because of the temple. Well, how does this one compare? And they think of that and they look at this foundation. And they're just distraught. They're thinking, this is, this is nothing. This is going to be a shack. Now, it wasn't that the temple was so small. It actually was pretty close to the same dimensions as the Temple of Solomon. But the problem was, they just didn't have the resources to make it great. They didn't have the gold. They didn't have the precious stone. They didn't even have the sacred items to put in the temple, like the ark. You know what? They may not have even had the resources to finish it. And they consider all these things and they start to get discouraged. They start to despair and just think, you know what? This is a lost cause. You know, we're called to build God's temple, but this is just a bad investment. This is a waste of time. I mean, didn't we get along 70 years in Babylon without it just fine? Why not just be good with the memories, right? Be good with the memories, all the great things that used to be, rather than this reminder of our failure. Now, I know this morning, 
there are probably people here in that exact situation. People caught in despair and difficulty and plugging away at difficult things where you see very little fruit. Seems like most of our ministry can be that way at times. We sow seeds, we do work, parenting, everything. There's all kinds of things where we do a lot of work and we barely see fruit. And it can lead to despair. Well, God has hope for the despairing this morning. He did for the Israelites and He does for us as well. So let's see how God encourages His people in verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the, the Lord. And work. Why? For I am with you. You see the encouragement there is that I'm with you. I, I'm close to you. I'm near to you. I haven't forgotten you. And really what he's saying here is I'm good. I'm good. I'm right there with you in this. Well, how does his goodness show up? How does it manifest itself? Let's keep reading the end of verse, verse 4 there. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. So he's saying, do you remember what happened in Egypt? Which is kind of ironic because they were in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was celebrating what happened in Egypt, right? So Jesus, or excuse me, God is telling to them through Haggai, look, do you remember what happened there? How I remained with my people? Do you remember how I treated Moses? Do you remember how I treated all the sons of Israel? I'm faithful. I didn't abandon them in their time of need. Well, guess what? I'm still here. I know you don't see the, the pillar of fire by day, or excuse me, by night, and the cloud by day. The glory doesn't rest on the temple like it used to. But guess what? My spirit is still in your midst. I'm still good. I'm still close. I'm right there in this with you. And I'm not leaving. I'm sticking around. I'm not going to abandon you. I care for you. You know what? That's a glorious truth, but it's not enough. It's not enough if God just can, or excuse me, that He just cares. He actually needs to be able to do something about it. And guess what else we see in this verse? We don't just see His goodness. We also get a glimpse of His greatness. Go back to uh, the end of verse 4 there. For I am with you, declares who? The Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know if you caught it the first time we read it, but... Haggai uses this Lord of hosts over and over and over again. It almost gets to the point like, okay, I get it, right? It's Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Well, it's the, it's the Lord of heavenly armies. It's the sovereign one, the ruler of the universe. The one who holds salvation and history and everything in his hand. That's the one who's with them. That's the one who's in this. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, he does say, according to the covenant, verse 5, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Do you remember what happened to get them to come out of Egypt? God's saying, look, you remember when I made the most powerful man in the world seem like an idiot? Seem like a fool? You thought his glory was great and then I showed up. Look, I dropped food from the sky for my people. I made water come out of a rock for them. I can do anything that I want. And guess what? I'm going to do whatever you need. I'm going to care for you. I'm good, but I'm also great. And that's what makes His promises so precious, isn't it? I mean, think about Romans 8. Why is Romans 8 so great? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
You know the answer to that question is nobody, right? Because God is the one that's for us. And the implication is that everything that's true of God is not just true, it's true on our behalf. Think about that for a minute. I mean, meditate on that for the rest of your life. That God's His power, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His mercy, His grace is not just at work. It's at work for you if you are in Christ. And for God's glory. Isn't that an incredible truth? So when you want to encourage somebody, don't tell them, you're skinny enough. You're smart enough. Don't tell them, "Ah, you'll figure this out. Tell them that God is for them. Tell them that the God who is good and the God who is great is for them and with them. That's what the despairing, that's what the discouraged need to hear. And that's what we still need to hear, don't we? Every single day. You know, it's enough probably to end the sermon there and just go meditate on that for the rest of the day. But there's more text and it actually does get better because God doesn't just say, look, I'm for you right now. I'm good right now. I'm great right now. He's saying, my goodness, my my greatness will continue. And I'm building more than you can possibly imagine. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, there it is again, Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house, the temple, with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I hope you see what Haggai is doing here. He's saying, look, I'm doing more than you can possibly imagine. I know it looks like you're, you're working and building and it's just not making any progress and it seems like it's worthless. And you don't have the resources, you don't have everything, but guess what? I'm doing more than you can ever dream with this place. And what Haggai is trying to do here is is encourage them, but also give them a little taste of what's to come. He's trying to give them a prophecy, and like most prophecy, there's multiple fulfillments, right? Well, there's one fulfillment in this when Jesus shows up. And believe it or not, this temple of Zerubbabel, this, this second temple in a way, this temple, when Jesus shows up, is glorious. Because Herod decides to impress the Jews and he decides to bring in all of his wealth and all of his strength to expand the temple and make it beautiful. And when Jesus shows up with his disciples, they're blown away. Remember the talking to Jesus, can you believe this and how glorious this is? You can still go to that foundation today. But we also know this too. That temple was the temple that was also destroyed in 70 AD. So does that mean that this wasn't the place of peace? The glory that was supposed to be greater than the last temple didn't really happen? Is that really? Did Haggai's words not come true? Well, this also has a second fulfillment, doesn't it? Because Jesus stood on the steps of those, that temple and He said this in John 2, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But He was talking about the temple of His body. You see, the Bible teaches us that the temple of God is the place where God meets with His people. And throughout history, there was still a separation. Even though they had the temple, God was still a little bit off. Had to be sacrifices and blood atonement to be able to meet with God. But then God comes to us. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
He became a man, so now it's God with His people. He is the final temple that all the prophets was talking about. He's the one that would shake the nations so that all would come to Him. He's the one that would be the, the eternal resting place of the glory of God. And He's the one that would ultimately bring peace, as this is talking about. That's why Colossians says, "...for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And if that wasn't amazing enough, the Bible also teaches us that if we are in Christ, if we are saved through Him, then we become part of His body and part of the temple itself. Shocking to think that, but Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have been filled with God's Spirit. We actually are part of the eternal resting place of the glory of God. And we are continuing to build God's temple as we call others to faith in the head of the temple, the head of the church, which is Christ. And you know how it all ends, don't you? Revelation 21 says, And I see no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring them glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations. Jesus is that temple. And in Christ, we are brought into that temple as well. Because God is good. And God is great. And He's always building more than we can possibly know in Christ. Now that's not all. God's people don't just despair. Sometimes God's people are prideful. Sometimes they actually think they're great. And forget who God is. And that's exactly what we see in the next part of the passage. In verse 10. And don't worry, this one will go a little faster. <laughs> Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the prophet, or Haggai the prophet. Now this is two months later, we're into December now, 520 BC, and the work is continuing, they're still at work, they were encouraged in their despair, but now something else has happened. Now their pride is going to be built up. Let's see what it says, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Ask the priests about the law. Now, this, this was actually a common practice. They would call the priests up and say, hey, give us a judgment on the law. What should we do here? And they would make a judgment based on some of the law, and then they would make some kind of ruling. But the thing is here is that Haggai is calling up the priests for the judgment, but they didn't know that they were going to be judging Israel. That this is, a, this is an object lesson, but the ruling will be against the people of God. And look at the object lesson in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now this is just describing what the priests would do. They would, they would cut up sacrifices and they actually had folds in their garments so that they could hold the meat in and take it to the altar so that it wouldn't touch anything and get defiled. But Haggai is teaching something bigger here, right? He's teaching them that holiness 
is not transferred in the same way that uncleanness or defilement is. But this kind of works in our world in other ways too, doesn't it? If I have two um, washcloths, one of them's dirty, one of them's clean, if I rub them together, do they both become clean? I wish, right? That would make dishes way easier, but no, they don't. Or if, you, if you're sick, do you get better by hanging out with healthy people? No, you know how that works, right? We, we get them sick. We bring that uncleanliness around. And that's kind of the object lesson here, but there's something bigger at play. And let's see what Haggai says. Verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there at the temple is unclean. You see what they're doing? They were despairing. God encouraged them. They got to work. They start building the temple and they think, hey, this is looking pretty good. I wonder because I'm doing the work of God if God loves me more now. Maybe, maybe I'm a little more holy because I'm doing holy work. Maybe the holiness of the temple is rubbing off on me. And Haggai's trying to say, no, no, no. It doesn't work like that, right? Defilement, yeah, that can pretty much spread like wildfire. We know that in our world. But holiness has to be given by the one who is holy. It's not transferred in the same way that defilement is. So working on God's temple doesn't fix you. It doesn't fix you. And look what he says in verse 15. Now then consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So now we're talking before that first sermon, when they were just leaving the temple in ruins. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What's God doing here? Well, he's saying, do you remember how this started? Do you remember how all this started way back before Haggai even started talking about? Do you remember how hard-hearted you were? Do you remember how you prioritized God, you pushed Him aside because you thought that you were building your own lives, your own temples? You put yourself first and God was just a second thought? Well, we're going right back to that again. Because remember what happened then. God frustrated your plans to bring you back to Him. Now you're going right back to that sin. You're going right back to that hardness and that pride. You think you're great. And you forgot the great one. You forgot the one who is great. As Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God's saying, look, you think you're doing me a favor? You think I need that temple to be glorified? You know, I'm good and I'm great whether that temple is there or not. And if I wanted a temple, I don't even have to ask you. <laughs> I could say the word and boom, temple. It does, doesn't take you. Right? So don't think that you're earning anything here. Don't be built up with pride. You're, you're forgetting what this is all about. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the building is secondary, but the glory, glory of God is primary. That's what they're missing. So how does God discourage people or encourage people in their pride? How does He wake them up? And I love this. This is the most beautiful thing in this passage. When the people are despairing, God shows them His goodness. 
and then encourages them and strengthens them, strengthens them with His greatness to get them working. When they're prideful, God breaks them with His greatness. But then He strengthens them with His goodness. Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly how God works. Both His goodness and greatness are in play here. Look at what He says in verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundations of the temple, the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. God's saying, look what's happened because of your sin. Look where you are. You're right back to the same spot. There's been no crop. There's been nothing to celebrate. Your sin is still, in, still destroying you. But guess what? I am great. I'm the one that's going to bring all these things in, but I'm also good. Verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. I'm going to open up the heavens and give you rain. I'm going to give you crop. I'm going to be with you and continue to bless your work. You're building the temple because I'm going to be faithful even when you're not. I won't forget you even though you might forget me. And the amazing thing is His goodness doesn't end there. Look what it says next. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now this is weird because if you look at the date, it's the same day. Came a second time, second sermon on the same day. Is this, is this like morning service and evening service? Not quite, but a little bit. He, he speaks to the people in the morning and says, guess what? God is great. You better repent. You better turn to Him. And because He's the one that is wrathful and holy and He deserves worship, but He's also good and He's going to bless you. But then it's almost like God can't contain Himself. It's like God, God says, I have to go to Zerubbabel, the leader, and tell him how I'm going to be good to my people. I have to go and tell them how I'm going to bless them. I just left it open-ended, but I can't do that. So God goes right to Zerubbabel and shows him his goodness. Verse 21, the very end of 21. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Same thing he said before. And overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. Now, this is apocalyptic literature showing God's greatness and His control over nations. So, what's, the, what's going on here? What's the goal of all this? Why is He telling the king how He's going to overthrow kingdoms? We see that in 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheotiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what a signet ring is? Kings used to have it. They used to wear it on their neck or on their finger. and It was a symbol of power and authority that they would, they would stamp important documents or decrees in. And it was this idea that I'm sending my word out and this is how it's going to be. This power and authority says, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you the symbol of power and authority in this world. And we think, well, yeah, he's the king. No, no big deal. Well, this is a profound statement which would have hit home to Zerubbabel because... Zerubbabel came from a very rough background. You may not know, but Zerubbabel is in the line of David. But before the exile, Zerubbabel's grandfather, which was the king Jehoiakim, was a horrible king. In fact, he was one of the ones responsible for the exile to begin with. 
And this is what God said of Jehoiakim, of his grandfather in Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off. So the last Zerubbabel had heard from God is that it seems like the line of David has ended. It seems like the, the promise of God is abandoned because we've sinned so much. And God comes to Zerubbabel and reestablishes the Davidic covenant. And says, you're still my signet ring. You're still my symbol of authority in this world. You're still going to rule and reign on the throne of David. And your family will rule and reign forever. You know one of the most beautiful things that happens in our Bibles? It's only a couple pages over. You get to the very beginning of Matthew. What do we find? The genealogy from David to Jesus. And guess who's in there? It's Rebel. Isn't that beautiful? That God is saying, I know this temple looks measly. I know you don't feel like the leaders that you're supposed to be. I know you've been rejected, Zerubbabel. Your people are filled with despair and pride. But I'm going to do amazing things with you. I'm going to work through all the sin and all the difficulty. I'm going to stay in this. And I'm going to show you my goodness. And I'm going to show you my greatness. And I'm not going to leave you thinking that you can earn your holiness on your own. I'm going to provide holiness through my eternal King. I'm going to send my son, the Messiah, the one that David talked about, the one, the son of David, to rule and reign forever. He will be the temple. He will be the signet ring. And he will be the one that brings lasting peace. And even today as we worship, we remember him for those things, don't we? We glory in God because Jesus has brought all those things to us and he still does. He still brings us grace and hope and peace and we get to be ambassadors of that peace to the lost and dying world. So what do we do? Well, we get to work. We build God's kingdom. Well, really, rather, God builds His kingdom through us. Even though we might despair, even though we might have hardness and pride, we need to remember that God is good and that God is great and He's always at work building more than we can possibly imagine in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, for the challenge, for the encouragement it gives. Thank You that Your Son is everything we need in Him to be, the solution to our sin, our hopelessness, our despair, and our pride. Thank You that He came and lived perfectly in our place, died to pay for our sin, and rose again to give us new life. Pray that that gospel would ever be on our lips as we proclaim it to the lost and dying world so that we can see your temple grow before us and that you would continue to draw more and more people in from the ends of the earth so that you may be glorified. Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would be honored through us. In Jesus' name, amen.